There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. Thick-ass Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre? Nah, dog. Like, I got stalkers to catch. I ain't got time for that. It looks like you tried to catch somebody's shit zoo with a hat. <laughs> exactly. You remember zoo bats? Oh, yeah. Pants? Oh, yeah. yeah. The big baggy I still got pants. some. Yeah. yeah, yeah, with the zebra stripes. Yeah. yeah, 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 of course. Real quick, if you're the listener already crafting an email in your head telling us uh, what your interpretation of the old man in the sea is, stop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, degenerate anglers, and welcome to Bent, the fishing podcast that swears to God if you reel that barrel swivel into the tip guide one more time, it will not take you out for Froyo when we get back to the dock. I'm Joe Cermelli. And I'm Hayden Samak. And uh, and doesn't like that the, uh, what do you call it, the FG eliminate that issue <laughs> like in its entirety? Uh, yes, technically, yes. There's several uh, mainline the leader's places out there these days that if tied correctly, will allow you to uh, reel the knot all the way up onto your reel. But I brought up the swivels in the tip-top guide because here's the thing. Um, I think people have actually gotten so used to -to line-to-line connections, especially newer anglers, that if they do end up using a rig with a barrel swivel, like it, it just simply does not compute. Right, like I learned to fish with a barrel swivel connecting my leader to mainline, uh, and you know what? Like two Palomar knots against a quality swivel is a damn strong connection. Some may even argue stronger than any line-to-line connection. And I I never, or very rarely, only by mistake, ever reeled my swivel into my tip-top. I was just, like, cognizant of it and knew not to do that. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think that it's because beginners are, like, used to line to line connections. That's probably a a large assumption. Yeah, that is is fairly big. But, I mean, like, (laughs) reeling a swivel in is uh, not great. No, 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 no. I mean, it is the easiest way to uh, crack or chip the insert your tip-top guide, Uh, which is why, though, getting back to beginners for just one sec, you will rarely see a charter captain rig his rods with barrel swivels uh, for his leader for Mm. that reason, because I've been out there and all day long, it's just click, tink, click. And one can only, uh, you know, say, don't reel the swivel into the tip-top guide so many times. Um, I've experienced that on 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 my boats, uh, and every time you hear it, like oh, you just you just wince. Um, and I don't. know, To me, it's just not that difficult to remember. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, I'd agree with that. But have you ever gotten any sort of like legitimate damage because of somebody reeling, or because you or somebody barring your gear reeled totally. a barrel? Really? Yeah. No. Totally. Um, I I lent a surf rod to somebody oh, uh, one time, right? And uh, the next time I used it. Every third cast, like, my shit's just flying off. I'm just, like, sending storm shads off into the distance. Um, And it takes a second until you finally figure out, like, oh, shit, there's a chip in the tip-top guide, and I guarantee it's because that dude was reeling his swivel in. Um, So here's a hot tip, right? And something I don't do often, but if if I'm going to be fishing in the dark uh, on the surf or, say, going, like, popping for tuna, something that really matters, 
When I'm packing up my rods, I run a Q-tip around the inside of each guide. And if there's a chip or a crack, it usually frays the Q-tip. Uh, mm. Because to go back to that night on the beach, like I, I mean, I had no, I had to go home. Like I didn't bring two nine-foot surf rods. I just brought one to go fish for the night. So the night was kind of shot, you know. Yeah, yeah, but like I feel like. I feel like there's got to be like some sort of like MacGyver fix to that. <laughs> yeah, but see, not a great one in my opinion. Like if you have duct tape, you can try wrapping a, a tiny strip around the guide, but it doesn't cast the same, and the braid uh, will eventually cut through the tape. Mm. Um, and those insert materials are they're so slick that even like super glue, like trying to fill it with super glue, right. it doesn't stick all that well, right? Um, the best thing you, you, you could do maybe would just be to knock the entire, uh, insert out and, and, and fix the whole guide later. Oh, just, kind just, of fish just fish with a wireframe. Yeah, yeah. Just fish with a wireframe. Uh, and people will likely write in with other ideas, but I'm talking about quick fixes on the scene, right? If you can afford to kill the time and the hardware store is open, uh, you might have better ideas, but I'm talking about midnight all alone on the beach. Um, so this is also why it pays to have a good local rod guy. Mm. Shout out to mine, Rick Sikorsky of Rat Sticks. That dude has fixed so many chipped guides for me. Anyway, you must have MacGyvered something out there, fishing or not. What, uh, what have you MacGyvered? <laughs> yeah, I well, so I was like elk hunting uh, in September last year, and I I needed to get water out of this like little trickle. Mm-hmm. but it, it was like super shallow. It was just like this little spring coming out of this like little seep and it was all muddy. So if I like tried to like scoop my water bottle in it, like I'd get all sorts like yeah, pine yeah, chips yeah. and shit. Yeah. Like pine needles and shit. And um, so what I did was there were like some reeds next to, uh, next to the water. So I, I clipped one of these reeds with my knife. It was totally hollow in the middle. I built right. up like a couple rocks and like some mud around one end of the reed, uh, let the water build up behind it to the point that it went through the reed and over this little ledge. So now you had like a, a little spigot coming out of this spring. And I used, the, I, I let that run clear and I used that to fill up the water bottle. So that's something I'm excited. I believe that there is a, an exhibit in the Natural History Museum of ancient peoples doing exactly that. <laughs> So that is uh, that is very good. Uh, anyway, listen, if you've got a rod that's just too beat up, let's say, to be worth uh, any kind of costly repairs, how about a new one, perhaps from our sponsors, 13 Fishing? Um, I don't know what it's been like out there. Well, I kind of do because you've sent me pictures <laughs> dude, that we'll talk so about cool. in a minute. I know, Dude, it was it highs in the 70s here last weekend, record temps. So uh, I took the old Omen panfish and trout rods over to the local crappie hole thinking they'd uh, be all woke up, but not yet. So got a few good ones to go. But the, uh, the water temps haven't really caught up to the air. But I was using the 7-foot ultralight model, which is fairly slow and, um, and whippy. But these fish weren't, like, ripping the float under. It was mm -hmm. a very subtle bite. So that flex and softness um, really helped set the hook on these fish that kind of, like, barely had these baits in their mouths. So it worked out. Yeah. The, uh, you know, those 13 rods are so sensitive <laughs> that uh, me and my buddy Corey, we were, uh, we were doing our last, like, uh, like overnight burbot trip for the year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw what you did. It's cool. Yeah. Tell, tell well, us about it. Well, I'll, I'll tell you about what I think you're talking about, but I'll tell you something that was less cool, but nevertheless a, uh, a, a testament to the sensitivity of a 13 fishing rod. I was using one of those, uh, a medium action even, Widowmaker ah. uh, dead stick. And... We were chunking like while we were going to bed in like the uh, in in like the shelter or whatever, and we we're just kind of like talking and watching our rods. And mine just started to go like this. Listeners, you can't see it, but I'm like very subtly lifting and lowering my extended index finger here. It looks it looks like a swordfish bite on a deep drop rod. Yeah, 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 very subtly. And you know, I'd I'd go, I'd pop the rod out of the dead stick holder like real carefully so as not to disturb the burbot that was surely about to get stung. I'd set the hook and then nothing. And this happened like five or six times. It was maddening. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, I can see the bite, but I don't know what's going on. And then I thought about it for a second and I remember somebody telling me that there were crawfish in the lake that would set off their tip-ups. Oh. What I was watching was a crawfish Yep. Crawling onto my bait, twenty feet down, 
with a yep. medium action rod. Now tell me that that's not like a very sensitive ice rig. Very sensitive. And then you go set and he just whoops, goes yep. backwards and he's yep. gone. And we found this out by dropping a, uh, a camera down the hole and literally just seeing the bottom littered with crawfish. <laughs> just crawling oh, all dude, over. Dude, I'd drill another hole and put a trap down. Cold water crawfish boil? You mm. you bet as soon as ice off. Uh, that's what's go- that's what's going <laughs> you- down. And and we ended up uh, we we caught more than crawfish on that trip. We caught a tagged burbot. Yeah, who tagged that? That was interesting. Like who's tagging? Well, FWP, I guess. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I I I don't know. I know that Corey submitted the uh, the tag to FWP the other day. So we awesome. will. I will report back on uh, on what came about that. Anyway. Uh, we've already shared a, uh, a couple good tips here. That being always have a camera so you can see if you're uh, you're being attacked by crawfish <laughs> or uh, Joe's stupid, uh, you know, guide chip tip. <laughs> so let's carry the teaching over. We've got an awkward moment in angling for you that captures a teaching moment that um, doesn't look to be going particularly well. Why don't you take a picture of the last longer? So today's photo comes to us from Bent listener Rev Crimson. Now, I don't know if that's his real name, uh, though if it is, that's totally badass. <laughs> yeah. He may, he may be a real reverend, like an actual man of the Lord, uh, in which case, forgive us for some of the things we, we may be about to say. Or perhaps it's just a symbolic reverend title, similar to Rev Run of Run DMC. I, having seen the photo, uh, I think it's probably that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Either way, this is a great photo, um, especially if you're a dad. Now- I am not a dad, but this is no. still a great photo because there is a, a father-son moment being <laughs> captured here. And whereas you probably identify with uh, Rev the Dad Joe, I could put myself in the uh, in the son's position just like just like a little bit more easily. It's slightly more recent. That's fair. That's fair. Okay, so let's set this up, right? Uh, in the foreground of the shot is Rev's son. He didn't provide his name. That's okay. Okay, now he's a teenager, right? He's not a little, little fella. Uh, and he's wearing a tank top and some, some broken-in jeans with the kind of cloth belt that used to come standard on a pair of cargo shorts from Pacific Sunwear, okay? Uh, he's wearing a leather necklace. And while the charm at the end of it is obscured, right, I'm thinking, I'm willing to bet, just, just looking at it, it is a giant, one of those giant tribal bone hooks, right? Mm. Uh, which is, which I, I assume people wear as a true statement of, of angling prowess, which will make all this funnier in in just a minute. Here. Yeah, yeah. So the so the kids got this like wild, grown out hair as young uh, as young teenagers are sometimes want to do, and he's got a flat <laughs> brim hat on backwards, but he hasn't tucked the hair under it. So it's like one of those things where it looks like. Yeah, you know that look, right? Like it's it, hard to describe. It, it, it's like it, it looks like you tried to catch somebody's shit zoo with a hat. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And now all you can see is just like the tuft of fur under it. Anyhow, um Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's also wearing uh frameless, like Oakley style, and I guarantee you they're gas station beater sunglasses. <laughs> and he's he's looking down at his hands. Yeah, yeah. I still insist on referring to those style of glasses as uh Ken Griffey Jr. glasses. Uh, anyway, yeah, so he's looking at his hands, and he, he's fiddling with fishing line. Um, the expression on his face is, is totally blank. Not much going on there. Uh, so now we can move on to uh, the Rev, yeah, who's and I, standing I will, behind him. I will him. say, uh, Rev is the primary focus of my roast because I don't believe in... Uh, if he's 17, There's I don't want to... There's more to say about Rev, so yeah. I understand that. I couldn't right? tell okay, if he was anyway. above 18, so I didn't want, want to lay into him too hard, you know? <laughs> okay. So Rev is standing behind him, and he's doing the uh, open trout vest over a tank top thing, right? His arms are are sternly crossed ac- across his uh, his chest. Um, he's wearing a pair of old school Vietnam era camo pants, covered up with hip boots. We'll get to that. Now let's talk about hip boots for a second. By and large. You just don't see them in fishing the way you used to, mm-hmm. right? Like I started out as a kid with hip boots, but nowadays I feel like uh, the kids go straight to chest waders just because so many companies make little kid chest waders, right? Did you start out with hip boots when you first started wading? Well, you know, I, I, I like hip boots a lot, and here's why. If you're kind of doing like a – like a, we've talked about how I have an affinity for a blue lining brook trout. and in, in Yeah, case, that's kind of a waste to wear chest waders for a blue yeah, line. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I get that. In, in case you guys like don't remember, uh, a, a blue lining for brook trout is like 
or just any trout for that matter, is finding just a small blue line on a topo map and just going in and exploring and hoping that there are some fish there more or less. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I wear them for that because you can wear your hiking boots in, pack those hip waders in, just yep. super easy. And a lot of times you don't need them, but it's good because a lot of those streams are like, you know, they have like a, you know, maybe like a real muddy bank where it's like two and a half foot of mud. And even if you were in wellies, which you didn't want to hike into in the first place, and are actually less convenient to carry <laughs> than a lot of these breathable, uh, like frog tog style hip boots. Um, you'd go in past them and you'd be unhappy. Yeah, I see, I see, I see. I just, in my observation, I see more application in hunting these days because mm. I started out with hip boots and inevitably would go in over them. Yeah. Like it was just not enough coverage. Like it was just a, a disaster. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so Rev has that totally old school, like definitely like PA or Ohio or West Virginia trout fisherman look, and I yeah. dig it. Yeah. Uh, his yeah. arms yeah. are also like covered in tats, and I can't make all of them out, but I know one is a uh, is a big old rose, and yep. uh, Rev has kind of a high and tight military haircut. He's rocking some. Mm-hmm. Dark oval, kind of nineteen. Well, they're not really that, man. What they look like is their transition lenses. I think is what's going they, on. They, there. You know, you're right. They are transition lenses, but they have that oval, like oblong, kind of nineteen mm. sixties shape about yep. them. Yeah, yeah, And he has a uh, a killer, like uh, what do you call it? Like the James Hetfield, the uh, Fu Manchu. Fu Manchu. Yeah. He has a killer uh, Fu Manchu. Now, most most critically, though. Rev's head is cocked to the side looking upon his son with a look of complete disdain and frustration. Well, it looks like he's in the middle of saying something, too. He, he is. He is. But here's why. Here's Rev, Rev writes with this photo. The photo is of me and my son. I have, for the 20th time that day, tried to explain how to tie a simple clinch knot. So that ties the disdain in the photo together. Well, it's funny. That's going to that's gonna kind of mess up one of my burns, but go ahead. <laughs> so anyway, he says, anyway, always makes me laugh when I see it. As a side note, my son has since absconded with my new 13 fishing rod. Hey, there you go. Somewhere with your boy Lance V, something about hashtag Guggen Squad, hashtag chunk bait, not hate. Um, now, I, I understand it's hard to get the full visual, but dads know this look of what the f*** are you actually doing right now. And it's been captured here perfectly. Like I said, I, I've, I'm uh, I'm personally yet... To, well, no, nah, that's not true. I give that look to folks all the time, but not in, the, in a fatherly <laughs> sort of way. But I, I, And I have been on the receiving end of it many times myself. Yeah, yeah. And Rev looks like a no-bullshit kind of guy, frankly. Uh, major dad energy, mm. as you wrote in your response to him. Um, it, it also looks like, like you said, that Rev is mid-sentence, and I can only imagine uh, the words being uttered. Uh, so now the boy is also in a high-pressure situation as he tries to tie. He's 28 years old, and he can eat a chicken sandwich. Very impressive. Mike Fitzgibbon's son is a nuclear physicist, and my son can eat a chicken! No! So I'm very curious about the roast this week. I, I was going to ask if you're focusing on Rev or the boys or Mix, Rev. but you already <laughs> said on Rev. That's uh, my my new favorite part of awkward moments. Are you ready? We will put ten seconds on the clock and go. <laughs> Dude looks like he doesn't know if he's more disappointed in his son's not tying or his outfit. Dude looks like a fisherman character in Apocalypse Now. <laughs> That's good. Dude looks like <laughs> dude looks like the love child of Bob the Garbage Man and Mike Iconelli. Oh my God! You'll see it when you see the photo. Dude looks like he's halfway through a rant about how not strength is bogus, and that big fishing just wants you to tie complicated knots so you spend more time tying and less time fishing in an effort to save fish as part of their secret green agenda. Wow, that was masterful. Was that the last one? That's the last one. I spent some time on that. <laughs> that was masterful. That was masterful. Oh my god, that was really good. Um, wow, you like you like took the spit out of my mouth. That was so good. Anyway, uh, Rev, thanks so much for sending that one in. Uh, I'm sorry if the boy is going the way of the Guggen Squad. That's just too bad. <laughs> Tie him up, Rev, and make him watch Roland Martin DVDs for a few hours. You'll get him back. Um, hey, if you've got a good shot of yourself about to open up a can of whoop-ass on your child while fishing, do please send it along to bent at com. 
so that was a little different. Uh, I enjoyed that one. That's for all the dads um, and moms, right, out there. They get it. And if you don't have kids yet, uh, despite how you, you may feel now, uh, believe me, the day will come that no matter how much you love your kids, you will find yourself um, asking them if they are stupid. Like, that's going to happen. You'll just be like, are you stupid? It just happens naturally. So that's why I appreciate that photo from Rev so much. I believe it, man. Uh, that, that realization <laughs> comes to some quicker than others. Just ask my dad. <laughs> anyway, uh, I've been asking myself if I'm stupid all week long after hearing from you guys about the Trojan brook trout story I covered last week. So uh, find out if I'm competent and qualified or not in this week's installment of Fish News. That escalated quickly. All right, so correction time. Uh, This happens on occasion. (laughs) Maybe this is less of a correction than just a clarification, but the masses have spoken and I shall respond. Uh, Last week, I covered the story of the Trojan brook trout, and, and while discussing how brookies found their way out west... I said that the Mississippi River acted as a natural barrier. In other words, you have all these native brookies in states east of the Mississippi, right? Uh, And while they could conceivably reach the Mississippi, the chances Mm. uh, of them populating the western side of the country that way are are pretty slim for a bunch of different reasons. Temperatures, predators, all that stuff, right? Um, Well, everyone, everyone jumped up and said, whoa, buddy. There are native brook trout in the Driftless area of Wisconsin and Minnesota and Iowa, and uh, guess what? They live on the west side of the Mississippi, so you're wrong. Um, And okay, apologies, Driftless area anglers. You are correct, uh, but where I failed was to specify that the Mississippi River, when referring to to all the states east of it, which have a lot more wild brookies than than the Driftless, right? You guys have your own strain up there. Um, The point the article was making that I pulled from was that brookies were populated in the West by people bringing them from the East, where, you know, once again, um, there are a lot more brookies than just in the Driftless. So, yes, there are brookies west of the Mississippi in the Driftless, but even there, the Mississippi is still kind of a barrier. Like, the brookies in the Driftless would have to have, you know, gone through generations of travel hell to populate waters all the way out West. So, basically, I'm saying I apologize for forgetting our friends in the Driftless in that little trout country surrounded by walleye and musky country. <laughs> yeah. um, it was just a little it, out of context, but God, I've fished in your waters. I love them dearly, and I apologize. You do have wild brookies, native brookies. Yeah, I, I, I like the guy that pointed <laughs> out that you had <laughs> talked about catching tiger trout in the Driftless and was like, dude, do the math in reverse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that you know, that's it. I, I, yeah, I just recently did say that like the Driftless is one of the few places that has um, wild uh, native tiger trout, which would require brook trout again i'm sorry okay yeah, i'm and sorry I, and I, it will and i have again. a uh, <laughs> i think i have a slight correction of my own on that same story somebody brought to my attention that i i i, I mis uh represented wild versus native trout or like i, I like slipped and i said wild when i meant native uh, yeah come on people yeah. get over well, it well, you know nah, what we're nah, talking it's, it's about it, come on that happens all the time native is something that has been here always Wild is something that was introduced and has since developed like a, a sustaining population. So there's there's my correction, Joe. We're both we are idiots. we are both now correct. <laughs> we are coming correct. Uh, okay. Anyway, enough on that. Uh, quick thanks to everyone that tuned in to Hayden's Tuesday night tie deal last week on Instagram. Mm. Um, I had a bunch of fun chatting with you guys while tying up the old master splinter. Now, so everyone knows, you're aiming to host that every Tuesday night on your Instagram, correct? I am a man. Um, so real quick, uh, this week, like this past week, you, from the point that you are listening to it now, go back in time three days, that being Tuesday, we did not do a, uh, we did not do a tie week. And that's cause I'm trying to get the whole thing sort of under my fingers, trying to find, uh, some cool folks to come on and teach us how to tie flies. Yeah. To um, that end, I'd like to, cause a few people reached out to me. I am down to jump in there when I can. But just to clarify, I, I can't necessarily oh, commit to being there every Tuesday. <laughs> Joe has kids. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's an ass to be wiped at that hour on most Tuesdays, okay? Yeah. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, the Bent uh, Tie Long Tuesday series, that is going to be uh, taking off soon on the old Instagram. If you follow me at Hayden underscore Samak, you will be tuned in to when that's going down. Basically, we're going to have somebody cool come on and show me how to tie a fly, and by proxy, you how to tie a fly. Uh, we'll tie one with a tutorial, and then we'll tie another one while we're just kind of bullshitting. I'll, uh, what's that show with the chicken wings? The hot ones. 
a la hot oh, ones. Yeah, it'd be yeah, kind of yeah. like that. Yeah, and dude, and I, I, I really did have fun. I will jump in when I can. Maybe not to tie along, but just to like heckle and say inane shit. Um, but no, that's good. They, that was a really good time. Uh, let's see. Let's not forget our conservation minutes before we get into the meat of news. It's a new thing mm. we're doing. Here's what I got. Uh, the state of Massachusetts recently announced that motorists can now purchase license plates to give back to striped bass conservation. Nice. Uh, if you want one, you'll have to spend $40 every two years on top of the fee uh, that comes with just having a regular plate. A uh, quote from the story reads, the purchase of these specialty license plates will enhance efforts to conserve and restore striped bass, river herring, and other marine fisheries that are vital to the Commonwealth's coastal ecology, economy, and culture. The plate features a striper chasing alewife herring painted by artist Jane Biondi. Uh, so we know Bob the Garbage Man is out because those ain't bunka. And uh, a giant Sabeel Magic Swimmer may have been more appealing to the anglers in that state since 99% of them only fish the Cape Cod Canal. Boom, I had to do it. I'm going to hear about it, but uh, there you go. <laughs> I'm not really sure the context, but I'm That's pretty okay. sure You're better you just off. roasted somebody. I did. <laughs> All right, on to my conservation minute here. I got two, uh, one being a uh, follow-up to your conservation minute from last week, uh, that being that um, the Goliath grouper season is uh, is going to be a thing in Florida, and yep. you can yep. buy a tag. It was passed. So there's that. Um, now, my more elaborate minute. On March 1st, uh, New Mexico officially declared landowner efforts to restrict public access to rivers and creeks as unconstitutional. Landowners were taking advantage of New Mexico's designation of waterways as being unnavigable. Uh, so, if you don't know, in much of the West, this designation is like navigable versus non-navigable is what separates water you can legally access by like wading or boating or whatever from water that you cannot. And people and, love to debate navigable versus non-navigable. It's a oh thing in every state. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, as it turned out, like uh, there was a single lawyer in New Mexico was processing a bunch of applications on behalf of landowners to designate their creeks and rivers running through their property as non-navigable, allowing the landowners to block them with like barbed wire, chain link, whatever. The problem was that the certification of a non-navigable waterway was more of a paid-for designation rather than an, mm. an actual certification process. So it's not like somebody was like, yup, that's like a thing. It's like this lawyer was literally just putting in these applications and like the, the state was going, yep, sure, sounds good. Um, so anyway, basically you could pay to privatize water, whether or not it was actually navigable or non-navigable. Um, you know, it's worth noting that there are lots of rivers in New Mexico that are, you know, fluctuate insanely in flows. So even like something that would be designated navigable could go all but dry during like the summer months, then come back up and it's still navigable, even yeah. though for a while it was non-navigable. Yeah. If that's confusing, I think that that's, that was the genesis for this legislation. Anyhow, um, that just got trashed and good riddance. If you'd like to read more about it, uh, you can check it out on TheMeatEater.com in an article by Maggie Hudlow, who I'm actually going to be referencing later on in Fish News, uh, titled New Mexico's Supreme Court Restores Public Stream Access Laws. There we go. All right, moving along. Remember, uh, news is a competition. We do not know which feature story the other fella is bringing to the table. At the end, a winner will be declared by our Trojan audio engineer, Phil. Uh, and it is your lead this week, man. So what you got? All right. So uh, this week on Fish News, we're taking a ride down to Georgia. Well, that's for you, for me. It's across and down to Georgia. To talk <laughs> about one of your favorite fish, Joe, the Shad. Yes. Uh, Before. Before we get there, though, I'd be interested to know what started your infatuation with the shad. Um, is it just that they, like, fight hard, or do you like that they taste like shit, or is it something to do in the spring? <laughs> so it's, it's sort of all of the above. I no, mean, bro, it, shad don't taste like shit. Uh, Ten emails in the inbox. Yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, yeah, I know, right. <laughs> um, really, the, the bigger answer is just tradition. I mean, growing up around here, like, that's something everybody did like it was a big deal that my dad and his friends would go to the Delaware mm. water gap every year to to do it and I remember you know like you're a little kid you're not allowed to go you're not tall enough for waders and then finally you get brought in so it's something I just grew up with as a spring mm. happening here um, but it's I also it's also the kickoff to spring fishing to good spring fishing here and um, they do fight <laughs> damn hard you know light nice mm. light tackle yeah dude they jump that's why we call them Jersey tarpon 
Yeah. Now, you and I had, uh, I forget what context we were talking about it in, but you had mentioned, oh, I remember. Folks, if you have not seen Joe's B-side on uh, on Shad in the Delaware, you, uh, you ought to go check that out. He gets deep into the history of it, uh, including how basically the folks at Valley Forge were relegated to Shad-based eating for a long stretch of time. And yeah. we can basically owe our independence to eating the fish that nobody wants to eat. Yes, and when you finish watching that B-side, read The Founding Fish by John McPhee. It'll tell you more than the B-side. It's a very good book. Yeah. Anyway, so on that note, uh, last week, angler Timmy Woods. Um, Timmy! <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, and his... <laughs> and his two-pound, ten-ounce fish beat the record for Georgia's biggest ever hickory shad, mm. overtaking the previous record held by Christian Blake Jones of a two-pound, three-ounce hickory shad caught in 2021. Timmy's fish was also just four ounces shy of the world record hickory shad, uh, coming in at two pounds, 14 ounces. Prior to that, the record had been a one pound, 15 ounce hickory shad caught in 95, a record that stood for nearly 30 years, if you didn't do that math already yourself. Mm. Um, Joe, now I know that a lot of the a lot of the shad that you catch, or maybe all the shad that you catch. I'm not too familiar with the shad fishery where you're at, but or shad fisheries in general for that matter. Um, you catch American shad, and I'm curious what your experience might be with hickory shad. Right. Well, I actually I actually catch both, and it's it's interesting though where where I live on the Delaware River, we have a much much higher percentage of the big American shad. Right. So they're the biggest shad mm. that run in the country. But uh, I will pick off a couple hickories a season occasionally. Now, subsequently, if you go just a little bit further south to Philadelphia, to the Schuylkill River, you have a you, you catch way more hickory shad. What is what is that fishery like, man? In in the Schuylkill, is it worth doing? Um, yes, it's a very good fishery. But I mean, there's 1,900 dams on it. I mean, these fish can only go so far out of the Delaware before they hit the famous uh, dam behind the art museum in Philly. And yes, there are fish ladders, but everybody's right. shad fishing below the dam. That's the story of right. a lot of East Coast rivers. Um, right. When I, w- when I was living there, man, I always wanted to go and catch the shad, but I never did it. Yeah. Well, hickories are a lot of fun. Um, they, they don't grow as big as the Americans. Interesting, though, they are a much more aggressive shad, right? So hmm. whereas American shad, uh, you have to set your, your darts and your spoons out so they run into them and then they bite them. Hickory yeah. shad, unlike Americans, also bite in salt water. So you catch them in the rivers, but then there's also runs in the fall along the entire Jersey coast around a lot of the inlets where you can cast spoons like you're casting for bluefish or, or throw flies. And like you will see hickory shad blowing up bait fish. American right. shad don't do oh, that. that's pretty cool. So uh, huh. they're smaller, but they're scrappy. Um, and just a little further south of me, you see a lot more that we have a much better run of Americans here. There you go, folks. The difference between American and Hickory Shad uh, via Joe Cermelli. Hmm. Back to the uh, back to the article here. So the article that I like lifted this story from was by Newsweek, and uh, the first thing I want to get into is how damn clickbaity the article title is. It's borderline <laughs> inexcusable, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it has to be the most clickbaity way you could possibly uh, frame a shad. How, how else are you going to make people care about a Hickory Shad? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, sure. But I mean, like, sure, shad spend most of their time in the salt, right? And yep. only migrate to spawn. But to frame that as as the article titled itself, uh, record-breaking fish normally found in Atlantic Ocean caught in Georgia River is just... <laughs> <laughs> I know they make it sound it's like a so freak. Ridiculous. What was this doing here? Oh, yeah. well, I mean, that dude, that's... Honest to God, that's what drew me to the thing. I was like, oh, my God, what'd they do? Like, catch, like, a redfish, like, way up somewhere? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I was, And it's an andronomous fish, man. That's like calling a record steelhead record-breaking fish normally found in Pacific Ocean caught in a Washington River. I mean, not that we're doing that anymore, but it, it, does, it, it just doesn't make any... I thought that was funny, and... It's very funny. It's an anadromous fish, though, not andromonous. I think that's from a sci-fi movie. Just letting oh, you know. I'm a f-ing idiot. All right. Well, <laughs> <sighs> yeah. 
you know, we all have those words, man, <laughs> that we just can't get around. And like, for whatever reason, my brain sees that and goes, Andronimus. I know it's an Andromus. I, 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 <laughs> it's okay. Anyway, I'm an idiot. Moving on, uh, let's talk about records. Lately, it seems like all sorts of records have been broken, and this extends uh, across the U.S. So, as we mentioned in Georgia, uh, the record had not been beaten for 30 years, got beat, and then got beat again within like another year or so. Um, and this has been happening everywhere. Uh, for example, in 2021 alone, Idaho certified 18 new record-breaking fish. In the same year, Montana broke seven records. In North Carolina, a similar pattern as we're seeing with the Georgia hickory shad occurred last year when the state record for channel cats was broken twice in the same year in 2021. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, the North Carolina channel cat record uh, had stood for over half a century. As our very own wildly talented colleague, Maggie Hildlow, who I referenced in the minutes there, uh, recently reported the mean mouth, that's a hybrid, small mouth, large mouth, world record, was broken for the third time in a single year in Texas. Mm. So, what's up with all the record breaking, man? Um, experts have varying theories. Uh, some include climate change-induced warming, prolonging uh, growing seasons for fish, resulting in obviously more growth. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wrote that like an idiot. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Another theory is that angler awareness of potential state records has increased in our digital age. Bingo. That's, you keep going, but I'm going with that one. I I think that's likely. uh, With information on state records uh, available at anglers' fingertips, no matter where they are. And another theory is that COVID just got a lot more people actively fishing, whether that's first-timers or fishermen with more time on their hands. All of these theories make sense, and it makes you wonder how long the trend will continue. Now, Joe, I know you had something to say about the uh, state records in a digital age. Yeah, well, it's exa- a snappy yeah. title, man. Spencer, you can have that. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 COVID is accurate, right? There are more right. people out fishing, but yeah, straight up, man. Like, I think there are more people that get off on like posting their record channel cat or chat. Like, there are just more people that are looking to achieve those goals. Whereas I don't know, dude, I might've caught the world record hickory shad 19 times in my life, Yeah, but I don't care. Like I wouldn't even be thinking, I wouldn't even look that up. And I think that's how people used to operate. So for a state record to fall or something, first and foremost, you had to look at that thing and have a, a sense of like, holy shit, this is so big. I mm. need to check what the world record is. Have, well, I, have I ever told you my channel cat story? Uh, I might have even told it on the podcast. Like, long story short, man, I, I, I caught this huge channel cat that I thought was, I don't know, probably mid-20s, something uh-huh. like that, like pounds. And I asked my buddy, I said, hey, look up what the state record channel cat is. Or look, I, I think I, I messed this up. I said, look up what the state record cat is. And my buddy, who was not a super experienced fisherman, gave me the ch- the uh, the flathead catfish record, not the channel cat record. Oh, and I was right. like, I was like, oh, dude, not even in contention. Threw the thing back. Turns out that uh, the channel cat record was obviously significantly less. I think it's like 29, 30 pounds, something like that. Right. And I, I don't think it would have been a state record. I'm not saying like, oh, I definitely threw back a state record fish. But like, at least it might have been in contention. Right, but do you lose sleep over that, not having that title? No, 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 but I'm saying, like, the, you know, again, pointing to, like, the digital age thing. Like, I was able to reference well, that right. very it's quickly. Very, it's, you're right. It's exactly right. Even it if is, you reference it, is, it wrong. It is incredibly easy to call that information up, no doubt. <laughs> Way to go, Jack. But, but there are just certain <laughs> <laughs> but there are just certain things, Shad being one of them, that, like, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't even, who can't, like, who? It's a, it's a yeah, hickory well, Shad. No disrespect to Timmy, but, like, it's a hickory shad, man. Like, yeah, I mean, well, you know, it's like, uh, <laughs> you know, it's an extension to like line class records and like, you know, like cichlid records. If and, I'm going to go through the effort of state recording something, I want people to see it and go, oh, damn. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. I know. So it's, hey, we've yeah. talked about record chasing Something before. that folks really care about, like snakeheads. Yes. That was sarcastic. Please enter your password. You have one unheard message. Hey, Joe, this is Carl. Uh, so we're sending out another drone operator with another drone. So if you could please keep an eye on your back cast. Drones work great in the air, terrible underwater. 
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth there's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination on your fishing bucket list book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids with over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. All right, so let's move over from uh, the downplaying of fish records to the downplaying of fishing in general. Uh, a couple people sent this along. Uh, it's a weird one, but it's just too ridiculous not to share, okay? And it comes from the UK's Guardian. Headline, University warns woke students that Ernest Hemingway's classic novel, Old Man in the Sea, contains graphic scenes of fishing. <laughs> now... Long ago, what, well, like what? Long, just wait. You just wait. Now, long I wonder ago, what they think about death in the afternoon, or for whom the bell tolls. I'm like, going. I'm know. going to tell you. Maybe not those specifically, but close. Now, long ago, I expressed my feelings about Ernest Hemingway on this show, but today those feelings are neither here nor there. Right? I will have you know, however, uh, Old Man in the Sea is, I think, the only required summer high school reading I actually read. The rest were all Cliff's Notes. And yes, of course, it was because it was about fishing, but also it is extremely short, right? It is a, it is a very short book. Thick-ass Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre? Nah, dog. Like, I got stalkers to catch. I ain't got time for that, right? I was in advanced English, even though I didn't read the books. Nice, man. Anyway, nice. No, uh, no, no, great. <laughs> uh, anyway. I was the, an English major and didn't read the books. You don't can't even pronounce anadromous. So what Ask does that tell you? Ask me what happened in Finnegan's Wake. Me and nobody else can tell you. <laughs> So, look, I do think, though, on the off chance you're not familiar with the story, here's the super cliff notes, like crazy cliff notes. What's a Faustin? It's a guy who doesn't care about books or interesting films and things. Then I'm Faustin. An old man heads out to sea to fish. He catches a <laughs> giant marlin. It's too big to fit in his little rowboat, so he ties it along the side, but then spends the next few days trying to get back to shore as he fends off sharks trying to eat his marlin and returns, as I recall, with nothing but the head and the tail. So some say this is this story is a metaphor for life. Others say it's a metaphor for Christianity. But it is a classic, right? Love or hate Hemingway, it's a classic. 
Uh, but at the University of the Highlands and Islands in Scotland, the metaphor is apparently too violent, too disturbing for some readers. Um, and I guess so as not to overwhelm the school counselors or whatever, the university put a content warning on the book alerting students that it contained, quote, graphic fishing scenes. Okay, before we get to that, real quick, if you're the listener already crafting an email in your head telling us uh, what your interpretation of the old man in the sea is, stop. Yeah. <laughs> Send that to Miles Nulty at. No, I'm just <laughs> Anyway, okay, so you brought up what do they think about this, that, or the other thing. This is not the first book that the university has added the content warning to. And here's the thing. The, this this determination, these warnings are, are being figured out by like their historical and, and literal society, right? So it's not like one guy. Um, others include Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which the content warning says contains violent murder and cruelty, as well as Romeo and Juliet, which contains, quote, uh, scenes of stabbing poison and suicide. So that graphic content warning just kind of ruins the entire book if you hadn't read it. You know, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Like, like you just told yeah, me no, everything that's, that's going to happen. Like you figure out in the beginning, oh, well, clearly I know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, anyway, a spokesman for the university said they are doing this so students can make informed choices. Um, and that's great, except I'd bet most of the choices they make are not to take the old man in the sea out of the library and stay in their dorms, like watching horrible pranks going wrong on TikTok and like people getting blown up on the news. Right. So like, we're going to worry mm. about old man in the sea. Um, and I'm sorry, but, but there's a part like this reeks to me a little bit of like that one kid, like that one kid that got all offended by something and complained because he thought Frankenstein was going to be like the lovable goofball he was in Monster Squad. You know what I mean? It was like terribly wrong. Uh, um, anyway, yeah. what are other very smart people saying about the move to add graphic content warnings to classic literature? They're saying that it is extremely dumb. Mary Dearborn, the author of well, Ernest <laughs> Hemingway, a biography, said. This is nonsense. Oh, I bet you she doesn't have any. <laughs> I bet you she doesn't have any skin in the game. Probably not. Uh, she says, this is nonsense. It blows my mind to think students might be encouraged to steer clear of the book. The world is a violent place, and it is counterproductive to pretend otherwise. Much of the violence in this story is rooted in the natural world. And she's right. It's, it's, it is the law of nature. Now, here's the... Here's... You're going to see trigger warnings outside of Yellowstone. Right. <laughs> so here's the best part. Jeremy Black, emeritus professor of history at the University of Exeter, added, This is particularly stupid, given the dependency of the economy of the highlands and islands of Scotland on industries such as commercial fishing and farming. So, like, that's kind of the clincher. Like, one of the biggest industries in this part of Scotland is freaking commercial fishing. And Santiago, the main character of the book, was a commercial fisherman. So... Not to get off, I'm going to try not to get off on a rant here because boy, could I. But I'll just tell you, like, this is what bothers me most. And it's not the specific incident or the graphic content warning on one book. But I think it speaks a little bit to the vulnerability of, of outdoors pursuits in the public eye in general, right? Like, if one organization can decide fishing is worthy of a graphic content warning, is it reasonable to assume, and I'm, I'm asking this, I'm not stating things, like, but is it reasonable to assume that in time, like fishing books or videos could just be labeled as something graphic? You know what I mean? Like, and if you scoff at that, has it not already happened in hunting? You know, if enough people speak up and say that's wrong and I don't want to see that, suddenly a pastime enjoyed by a lot of people can become tainted on YouTube or Facebook. You know what I mean? I, for, I, I just want to close by saying I don't think that's going to happen with fishing. I don't think so, but putting the graphic warning on Old Man in the Sea means that enough people within what you'd assume is an organization of smart people signed off and said, yes, I agree with this decision. We collectively agree there should be a graphic warning about the fishing in a classic Hemingway book. I think it's something to think about. Well, you know, therein like lies. I don't know, man. I don't have anything smart to say about this. I, I wish I did, dude. Did you um, read The Old Man in the Sea? Yeah, it sure did. Uh, I, I I think that. Um, all right, here's what I think. Take your time if you need to, dude. We can pause for a second and cut it if you want to noodle on it. No, no, I got it. Uh, I think that. Um, I think a lot of times there are things that we are exposed to in life that we don't have the tools to deal with. Um, a shocking death 
some sort of trauma. I also think that literature is a safe space to be exposed to those traumas in like a non-consequential way. Well put. Yeah. And and at least help you develop the tools you need to navigate things you're going to come up in life. For instance, when I was a uh, I, I when I was a kid in 5th grade, we read a a book called uh The K. Have you ever read that one? I'm not familiar with that one, no. It, it, it's like it's a uh, like a it's like a little like novella kind of deal. It's like a I, I forget if it's like one of those well-known books or I mean I'm sure it's a well-known. But anyway, the K is about a, a a little privileged kid who's I think is like the boat that his family is on sinks, and he's left with this dude. Uh, I think Timothy is his name, and Timothy's a black fella. And this is at a point in time where, like, racial, like, tensions are, like, high in society, Mm -hmm. right? So, like, in a lot of ways, as a fifth grader, that was, like, one of my first exposures to, like, a a, a long explication of, like, the ideas of, like, racism and, like, you know, it's it, 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 you. You understand what I'm getting I, I at? I totally do. I totally do. That that was so good. I I may have to get Phil to put from the arms of the angel under under what you just did again. I'm just oh <laughs> please God don't do it, man. Just let me like I'm letting you anyway. I, you, you're right. anyway. So that is the whole point so of yeah, making I mean, kids read books at different stages throughout their life. Like that's part exactly. of exactly. That's yeah, part of it. Exactly, Though I will say man. that that it, you know, twenty something years later, I'm still trying to figure out what the catcher in the rye was about like i just don't really get it and i don't want to get off on it but that was one that was like oh joe it just kills me man it just kills me that you don't know that it was like all this hype like next year we get to read catcher in the rye i'm like i don't get it anyway uh we'll see what what phil got this week this should be a good one from phil based on uh, these two choices of story and then uh, after him uh let's keep it salty i'm gonna do an end of the line on a jig that you actually might be able to catch a marlin on, um, or if not, at least a, a big-ass tuna. You know, it's been a while, and I'm feeling generous today, so I think I'm going to give the win to Hayden this week. Congrats! <laughs> I know we're over halfway through the show, and things like this generally go up at the top of something, but I thought I'd go ahead and issue a trigger warning for Bent, you know, just in case there are any discerning listeners out there who could use it. Okay, here we go. Uh, warning. The Bent Podcast contains graphic depictions of two white guys talking behind microphones and engaging in self-congratulatory mental masturbation for about 60 minutes, give or take. Also, occasionally a guy named Bob the Garbage Man will show up, and uh, at that point, I don't even know what to warn you about. You're on your own. All bets are off. Fishy, 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 fishy! It's not loud enough, Bert. I was 22 years old. Fresh out of college and working at Saltwater Sportsman Magazine, the first time I ever heard the words butterfly jig spoken. This was 2005, and our editor, Dave Benedetto, had just returned from a trip to the Gulf with Shimano, where he got a first-hand lesson about the jig Shimano claimed would revolutionize saltwater fishing. Now, I was intrigued, of course, but not overly so. Why? Because at that age, I was still glued to striper fishing in the surf. That's what I knew, and more importantly, that's what I could afford. And I hadn't been around long enough to make friends and contacts with boats that could take me offshore locally and actually use a butterfly jig. But I clearly remember Dave being impressed with its performance. It was also the first time American saltwater anglers were introduced to the idea of a system, a marketing strategy Shimano would continue for years to come. So you couldn't just buy the butterfly jig and send it down on your favorite ugly stick paired with the Mitchell 300. For the jig to work properly, they said, it needed to be paired with their rods and reels specifically designed for butterfly jigging. At the time, I scoffed at the idea. To fish a lure, I had to spend hundreds more on your rod and reel. And I wasn't the only one that felt this way, nor was I the only one that questioned the productivity of this whole deal. Yes, Dave had caught some red snappers and groupers, as I recall, but is a giant bluefin tuna or yellowfin tuna really going to eat that little chunk of metal? And if it does, will that little chunk of metal be able to hang on long enough to land it? If you take the design at face value, you can see why an offshore angler may have been skeptical back in the day. Butterfly jigs are thin-profile heavy jigs, some wider and some extremely thin. 
Whereas the metal jigs we were familiar with prior to 2005 featured a single or treble hook dangling at the bottom, butterfly jigs came with assist hooks, something U.S. anglers were not familiar with at all. Assist hooks are heavy-gauge single hooks tied or crimped to each end of a very heavy piece of braided line or dacron, which is then looped onto a solid steel ring. There are several configurations of assist hooks, but regardless of the style, that ring they're tied to is attached to the heavy-duty split ring on the top of the jig, not the bottom, dangling freely as the jig does its thing. Now, that thing is sort of a walk-the-dog action, like you'd see from a topwater spook, only it's achieved in a completely vertical orientation by pumping and reeling simultaneously at a fast pace, thus giving birth to the now very common term, high-speed jigging. What was a revolutionary concept here had been common in Japan for more than a decade before butterflies hit tackle shop shelves. It's no secret that many of the lures and tackle pieces we use routinely today were developed by the Japanese first, but in many ways, the butterfly jig had as much to do with catching more fish as it did simple efficiency. The Japanese love their fish, right? And they want as many in the boat as possible, as fast as possible. Now, if you think about a traditional metal jig, like a Hopkins or a Castmaster, your line is connected directly to one end of the lure, and the hook is connected to the bottom of the lure. Any pressure you put on the line is pulling directly against the heavy metal, and as the lure flops around during the fight, the weight of the lure itself can, in fact, dislodge the hook. The Japanese figured out that assist hooks provide a better connection from the rod directly to the hook instead of the lure, thus reducing fish loss. They also figured out that by reducing the weight of their rods and reels while simultaneously making them stronger, they could actually put more heat on the fish and land them much faster. To do that, of course, to make that kind of tackle, you end up creating much more expensive rods and reels, which is why back in 2005, so many people said, yeah, okay, Shimano, whatever. Fast forward to today, and high-speed jigging is a part of the vernacular of salty anglers on every coast in the United States. Matter of fact, it's so yesterday's news that now Shimano is leading the charge in the other direction with slow pitch jigging. Because if you think fast was cool, wait until you see what happens when you pump the brakes. But anyway, that's a whole other end-of-the-line segment. These days, high-speed butterfly jigs are produced by hundreds of companies in price ranges to fit almost any budget. Light jigging rods that have the backbone to beat big tuna are found in every tackle shop from a variety of makers to almost fit any budget as well. Since first hearing about butterfly jigs way back when I was the saltwater sportsman intern, I've gotten to use them a lot for everything from Gulf Snappers to Keys Amberjacks to Jersey Tuna, but I don't think I'll ever forget my first connection with one. It was during a bluefin run a few years later after butterflies hit the scene, and the buddy whose boat I was on, and who had a lot more money than me at the time, was the kind of guy that liked to stock his sled with the latest and greatest. So when we came over a pile of marks, he handed me a butterfly rod and said, drop it. Now, I'd never used one before, so he said, just real fast and pump at the same time. I was trying to say like this, but only got out like before it felt like I had snagged the Titanic. It was one of the most impressive dead stop rod bending hits I'd ever felt. And it is a very addicting kind of hit. It's the brown trout crumpling the streamer on steroids. It's the bass annihilating the frog times 10. And if you've never experienced a high-speed jig hit, man, you really should. And I will now be putting high-speed jigging on my list of things to do. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't really think it's, it's translated over to Sweetwater, at least not uh, the exact same presentation. But you, you could scale it down. Like, I don't see why it wouldn't work for things like Lakers and Pike Through the Ice. The one thing about high speed is that it is designed for fish that are, like, not messing around. Yeah. You know I mean, they can't be, like, nippers. Like, they got to be ready to just trash the thing. Oh, yeah. It's time to start prototyping up some micro uh, butterfly jigs. That, that could, Yeah, there you go. That could be the next big thing, man. Just scale it down. Anyway, um, that was a great backstory on a modern lure that has a stronghold in the saltwater scene, but we're going to discuss another one that has kind of taken over in the bass scene. Joining us on the Bent Helpline today is none other than the aforementioned Mike Iconelli. Yeah, who, who we in, just made fun of. <laughs> to weigh in on this bait and whether it's knocked another classic out of favor. 
What are you laughing at, Martini? You're not an idiot? Huh? You're not a damn loony now, boy. You're a fisherman. <laughs> emergency so joining us today for the bent helpline how about this for help how about mike iconelli to help with the bass fishing question what are the odds right so who who is the lucky listener that is kyle alston who sent this question in and i gotta admit i've been sitting on it because like i told mike I could kind of weigh in on this, but not nearly as good as as he can. I don't think uh, you know I'm going to offer quite as much perspective. So, uh, Mike, how you doing, man? We as always, we appreciate you being here. Doing great, doing great. Uh, cool, cool. So, uh, I'm very curious to to get your take on this. It's a it's a simple question, maybe with a complex answer, and maybe you might disagree with it. So, this is what Kyle writes. He says, "Growing up, I swear all my dad would ever throw for bass was a spinnerbait." Therefore, I used to throw a lot of spinner baits too. He says, I try to stay up on modern bass tactics, and I feel like for the most part, people just don't talk much about spinner baits anymore. Have they become obsolete? I still catch fish on them, but it seems like chatter baits get a lot more love. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to let you go first because, you know, you're Mike Iconelli. Well, so. I, I can tell you this, <laughs> uh, Kyle, that was a great question. It really is a good question. And, um, Fishing trends, fishing lures, it's a lot like fashion. I always like to convert it to fashion. My wife would be happy I'm saying this right now. Uh, <laughs> things come in and out of style a lot, right? If you look at fashion, uh, Joe, come on. You remember wearing parachute pants, don't you? Zubaz, too. You remember Zubaz oh, yeah. pants? Oh, yeah. yeah. The big baggy I still pants. still got some. Yeah. yeah, yeah, with the zebra stripes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so that stuff's out. <laughs> but whether we want to admit it or not, it's going to come back in style a little bit. Uh, well, yeah, Hayden wears them now. Hey, I think they have come back. Hayden's yeah. got them on right now. That's right. That is not true. <laughs> <laughs> Ow, I pulled but a muscle I, I, doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but I really think the same is true for the spinnerbait. You know, the spinnerbait has definitely lost favor to other trending techniques. And, and I would say the chatterbait, the vibration jig for sure, is something that has pushed the spinnerbait out. But the spinnerbait is so important to me, and I'm, I'm serious, it's always tied on one rod in my rod locker at all times. Gotcha. And that, that's, I'm talking about super dirty, muddy water, stained, crystal clear, 50 degree pre-spawn to heat of the summer, 80 degree water temperature. It's always tied on. And the one thing that a spinnerbait does is it is the perfect lure for a combination of flash and vibration together, right? So, you know, if we were just looking for vibration, uh, chatterbait might be a better bait. If we were just looking for flash, a jerkbait or a spoon might be a better bait. But that spinnerbait is the perfect combination of both of those attributes and to me, it's the original Alabama rig, right? It's, right. Uh, yeah. W- when you look at that spinnerbait, it looks like a little school of bait fish uh, coming through the water. You add that to the safety pin design of a spinnerbait, and you could throw it anywhere. Uh, just to give you a real quick uh, example of that, a chatterbait. Yeah. I love a chatterbait. Don't be throwing a chatterbait in those stumps and wood. Because you're going to be hung up with that John every five seconds. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We got a John out of Mike. I right. love it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the spinnerbait by design, right, that wire is a deflector to, to the bait. And, it, and it, it stops it from getting snagged on wood, rock, even grass. Um, it's a terrific bait. So I, I my answer to that is don't get rid of your spinnerbait anytime soon. It's still a really good bait. The, the main thing I would say is the blades are the most important thing on a spinnerbait. And if yeah. you want more vibration, you go to a Colorado. If you want more flash, you go to a willow. If you want something that sits right in the middle, you fish an Indiana-style blade. Right on, right on. Now, see, I would also say, even though I know there's some very, very well-made spinnerbaits out there, Chatter baits aren't cheap, but you can still get them like two ninety nine jobber spinner baits at the Walmart. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. like if, if you if you lose a few of them, you don't really care. Um, dude, I, I I have I have not much more to add to that other than I agreed with the question that I feel the same way, like snakehead fishing and stuff. Everybody's got chatterbaits, 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 and like nobody seems to be throwing a spinnerbait anymore. But um, they're as you, they're definitely not obsolete. So that's the wrong way to to think of it. 
So just not fashionable. They're not fashionable at the moment, but they're still just as good. Well, appreciate that, Mike. Um, Kyle, you just got your question answered by Mike Iaconelli. If you have a question that you want answered, uh, keep firing them off to us uh, at bent at com, and maybe we can help you out. So that's it for this week. Big thanks again uh, to Ike for dropping by uh, with some knowledge and clarity about spinnerbaits. Also, to every charter guide, you are welcome for the giant no reeling the swivel into the tip guide to PSA. Yeah, and if you happen to have a shot of yourself just after losing a fish to a chip guide, please be sure to post it using the Degenerate <laughs> Angler and Bent Podcast hashtags. Likewise, if you've got an awkward photo, send it to bent at com, along with any sale bin items, bar nominations, questions, or news clips you want us to read. That is right. And finally, kids, do Dad a favor and learn the clinch knot. He brought you into this world. It's the least you can do. You haven't gotten a job, cleaned the garage, or finished your first college essay yet, so at least give him the satisfaction of knowing you can tie on a rooster tail. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds i like pot calls i just like pot calls i enjoy calling with a pot call whatever direction you go including a box call which i don't personally use too much but they're fun and great i started out with them yanni on the other hand one of my main turkey hunting buddies he loves box calls and what's funny is i'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey so it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.